All right. Hey, it's 10.15, so just to honor the time that we do have, um, as you guys are working your way, try to find a seat, I'd love to open us up with prayer, but also just welcome you in. Um, as I said in there, my name is Mark, and I'm grateful that you're here for the session. Um, we did have resources up here, but everybody that was here in the last session took them all, so I apologize for that. I know next week to bring more, and that doesn't help you at all, so there you go. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Lord, thank you for this time to dive into the topic of how to answer the unbeliever. Apologetics, giving a defense for our faith, our trust, our hope in you. Lord, thank you that your word gives us all that we need for life and godliness. I pray that you would help us to not just know more, but actually apply more of it in our daily living with those around us, with ourselves, that we might be transformed by the renewal of our mind. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. All right, you guys. Um, man, I am so fired up about this topic, and I probably look like a weirdo because I am so fired up about this topic because it is not something that most people are like, oh, yeah, sign me up. I want to go talk to somebody about uh, Jesus and maybe get rejected, made fun of, uh, persecuted, or killed, right? Like, historically, that is what happens to people who are followers of Jesus. There is such um, adamant opposition against this message, and I know it to be true because I was against this message before I bowed the knee to Jesus. I was against him because I thought that I was a better God than the true God who exists. That's where my life went off the rails multiple times. I became a believer at the age of 19. But today, we're going to be able to dive into a topic that is so exciting to me because this is a topic where... You ever ask yourself, hey, what are the prayers that I know will be answered with a yes from God almost immediately? Like, I want to know the prayers, the things that I can ask God for that I know he's going to be like, yes, thank you for asking that. Amen, I'm giving it to you. This is one of those areas. To be able to have the boldness to love somebody else enough to share with them the hope in Jesus that we have. God, would you give me the boldness, the understanding, the wisdom to be able to talk to them about you and how you loved them to the point where you came and sacrificed your life on a cross. You were brutally murdered, willingly laid down your life, were buried, rose back to life as you promised you would to save sinners and bring us back into a relationship with the Father. God, give me boldness to be able to have these conversations with people that I love. Like, that is a prayer that God tells us he, he wants to answer. We see over and over again in the New Testament, he answers those types of prayers for boldness, for wisdom. And so diving into the topic of apologetics, uh, we need to dive in with a working definition. This comes from a pastor that I would highly recommend looking up, listening to. Vodi Bauckham says it this way, apologetics, or apologetics is just another word for defending the faith, giving a reason for the hope that's within you. Apologetics is merely knowing what we believe, knowing why we believe it, and being able to communicate that to others effectively. Apologetics is merely knowing what we believe, why we believe it, and being able to communicate that to others effectively. I would say, even in addition, with winsome humility, with tact, with a love for the person. Because at the end of the day, we're not looking to win an argument. I'm speaking mainly to my high school um, guy friends in here. Um, that I can relate to being in high school, there's the sense of arrogance that a lot of guys have naturally. Like, And you give us some good arguments as to why we're right and the other uh, side is wrong. 
that arrogance is kind of dangerous in this topic. And so we're not looking to win an argument. We're looking to win a soul. The Bible says that he who wins souls is wise. And so if this kind of overview of defending the faith and how to answer the unbeliever doesn't equip you to actually lovingly share your hope in Christ with another that doesn't know him, then I've, in some ways I've failed. But I believe that God's word is powerful and effective to give us what we need to honor him. And so the Bible commands us to do apologetics, and it tells us how to do it. A lot of Christians think apologetics, yeah, that's, isn't that like for the SEAL Team 6 equivalent believers that are just like wild and bold, and they're out everywhere just sharing the gospel. They don't care if they die. And I would say to you, because of the scriptures, no. Like, praise God for those guys, but thank you, Lord, for the rest of us that are given the same opportunity, the same spirit, who gives us courage when we feel like we have none, when we're called to enter into conversation with people who don't know Jesus. 2 Timothy 1.7, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power, love, and self-control. So it's about dependence on the Spirit of God who lives in us as Christians, those who have been born again. So the Bible tells us how to do apologetics, um, and it commands us to do so. The Christian worldview is a biblical worldview, and the command to defend the Bible comes from the Bible itself. Therefore, the Bible commands us to do apologetics, and it tells us how to do it. 1 Peter 3.15, one of the best verses in dealing with this topic, Peter writing in the context of Christians who were persecuted and heavily rejected in their day for not believing in the paganism of their day, not believing in the sexual immorality of their day, not believing in the flagrant expression of radical individualism of their day. Does that sound familiar? Maybe a little bit to our day. He told them all of these things that gave them courage, that gave them hope, that gave them a focused mission. And in 1 Peter 3.15, it says this, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. What's the priority according to this verse when dealing with apologetics? Make a defense. That's where we get the word apologetics from. Apologia is the Greek word for making a defense. It's a legal term to give evidence for the reasonable uh, side that we're bringing, the trustworthiness of the facts of what we're articulating, that it's true. That's not the priority of this verse, though. The priority, first and foremost, is to sanctify Christ as Lord. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples. So because Jesus is... Lord, now, not when he returns only, but currently Lord. He's in charge. He calls the shots. He tells us what the priorities are of him as the king. His kingdom is already here in part, but not yet fully as it will be when he returns. We are to recognize that he is the one. He is the Lord. And now we're able to walk in a manner that honors him and making a defense to those who ask us for the hope that's within us. Because as you stand up, especially in a crazy culture like ours is right now, it's just getting crazier and crazier. You know, the definition of what a man is and what a woman is, it's called into question because of just the craziness of our culture. When we detach from the anchor of truth, namely God's word, 
and his revelation, we start coming up with all sorts of ideas. In a culture that's, that's that crazy, you're going to have people asking you, hey, why, why are you filled with this hope? People are opposed to you as a Christian for standing on these things that seem to be really old school. Like, you believe in the Bible? I, I just think that's a fairy tale. I think that's a made-up book. Uh, but why do you believe that? That's kind of the sense of what Peter's telling Christians in his day. People are going to be asking you why you have this hope in the midst of opposition, in the midst of this culture that we live in. And he says, do this in such a way, not with arrogance and pride, but in gentleness and reverence. That word reverence is also respect. With gentleness and respect. That's how our conversations with the unbeliever should be uh, characterized. And so I don't know if some of you have had some of these objections from professed unbelievers, but some of these are typical that I've dealt with. I don't believe the Bible. Wasn't the Bible just made up to control people? A guy a long time ago said it's the opiate of the masses. It just kind of keeps people under control. Isn't that true? Or this objection to Christianity, God is just a fairy tale. Like, why do you believe in fairy tales? Why do you believe in a book that's 2,000 years old? I don't believe in God. I believe in science. Anyone hear that before? Right? As though the two are pitted against each other. Science is another word for knowledge. Knowledge cannot be attained apart from God because God himself is the necessary precondition for intelligibility. That phrase right there I had to like memorize because I heard somebody smart say that to me. I'm like, oh, that's good. I need to unpack that and what that means. But basically what it says is God is the necessary standard for knowing anything at all. Without God, we know nothing. And that's the position of professed atheism. Atheists hold to a worldview that says we're just time and chance acting on matter. The problem with that is that it doesn't comport with reality. It's not true. So case in point, I'm having a conversation with an atheist at his workplace a couple weeks ago, and I'm looking at, at him in the eyes after he says, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in any of that. I don't believe in the Bible. I look at him and say, look, as somebody who believes in time and chance acting on matter, you know that that's ridiculous when we're having an intelligible conversation right now. And you know that we're having an intelligible conversation right now because the Bible says that God made us in his image and we're intelligible beings with the ability to understand and reason and express logic. And at one point I looked at him and I said, look, our issue is not that we don't have enough evidence. Our issue is that we love our sin. The Bible says that we suppress the truth in our sin, our unrighteousness. And so it's not an evidence issue, it's a sin issue. The problem with most people is that we don't want to believe in God because we want to be God, because we love our sin. At that point, he said, huh. I don't know what the huh meant, but I'm sure that that caused him to stop and think a little bit more about his position and the arbitrariness of it, the ridiculous nature of how it breaks down. Now, a good question to ask people who make statements like these is this. They make the statement, so they're on the hook to defend their position, okay? Don't don't um, fall for the, the trap of, of you feeling like, oh, gosh, i got to defend myself. Why? Well, no, the Bible's not a fairy tale. Let me, let me tell you why. Don't, don't necessarily go there first. Just turn the question back on them. How did you come to that conclusion? Tell me, like, okay, that's a, that's a statement. Um, so can you justify why you believe that? Can you demonstrate what evidence there is to believe your position? 
asking them simple questions like that, eight to nine out of 10 people that profess atheism or unbelief or whatever, or relativism, or I'm spiritual, not religious, I don't believe in Jesus, uh, or I believe in Jesus as I do the rest of the gods that are out there. When you talk to people like that and challenge them, how did you come to that conclusion? They don't have much to say because there's not a lot of critical thinking that goes on in our day. And the point of them stopping and thinking is for a second, they get to look not at what you're standing on as a Christian, a solid rock, but they get to for a second stand, look where they're standing, which is sheet, sheet rock. I mean, it's like, like with holes in it that's about to cave through at best. They have holes in their worldview that they're not even taking the time to look at and recognize, oh, I actually can't justify why I believe what I believe. I've just heard it, and therefore I'm going to say it. Because here's the deal. At the end of the day, um, another great question to ask people is this. Frank Turek, he's a great Christian apologist. You look him up, you're going to find fantastic uh, exchanges that he has. We brought him into Fresno State a couple years back. It was great. Look it up. Um, Frank Turek says to the angry atheist, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And if there's any hesitation, if there's any, uh, then you know that it's not an evidence issue. It's a moral issue. What do we mean by that? Romans 1 tells us why it's a moral issue. God has revealed, therefore we can have confidence Romans 1.18 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So this section of God's word gives us universal insight into the condition of every person. When we come across unbelief, we don't need to sit there for hours to try to convince the person that God, in fact, exists. Talking about the complexity of the eye or the complexity of the world and how it operates, those things are good to hit. But according to God, they already know, they already have sufficient knowledge that he exists. He already made it evident to them. Look at these underlined phrases to see what I mean. Suppression of truth is the issue in verse 18. Verse 19, God made it evident to them. Verse 20, so that they are without excuse. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Man, don't we live in a darkened age where people that profess wisdom are living just completely crazy apart from God? That's where we live. Now, the difficulty is that for the Christian in here, and I say the Christian in here because I know that there's people that are just looking into the things of God. You might be an atheist in here, and I so grateful that you're here. Last week, I had a conversation with a high school student, came up to me afterwards. I was talking to one girl. She's like, how do I ask questions to my atheist friend? Like, I don't know which questions to ask exactly. And then he chimes in. He says, well, I'm an atheist, and I think that this is probably what you should ask him, because these are the questions that I'm having. I'm like, man, thank you so much for your honesty. And then we got this great dialogue going. We just got to see what God's word says about his position and how it doesn't hold ground in love, with respect, right? And so we're engaging, though, in worldview conflicts. It doesn't feel good because here's the deal. We live in a culture that adheres to and worships at the altar of God's commandments, namely the 11th commandment. You guys know what that is? 
Thou shalt be nice, right? Any form of violation of the 11th commandment, which for those of you ignorant of maybe the commandments, that's not a commandment. That's just what our culture adheres to. And therefore, if you come in with any type of confidence, it comes across as being rude and exclusive and uninclusive or whatever they say. And therefore, it's to be avoided at all costs because thou shall be nice kind of summarizes the way that you as a Christian should act. And yet, that's not what God says. God says, no, warn them. Tell them the truth in love with gentleness and respect because I love them. And you're my ambassadors. You're my representatives to a dark and dying world who needs me. Now, because we're engaging in worldview conflicts, the Christian worldview, the philosophy of life, and the non-Christian worldview or unbelieving philosophy of life, someone may say at this point, I don't believe God exists or the Bible is a myth. We're kind of caught in a corner because when the unbeliever claims to not believe God exists, we have two options. Do we believe what the unbeliever says about him or herself? Or do we believe what God has already said about the unbeliever? Does that make sense? God has already told us that he made them with sufficient understanding that they know he exists. It's a matter of sin. That's the issue, not a matter of more knowledge or more evidence. And so this is illustrated, I think, pretty well by two knights, like old school knights coming to fight. Knight number one comes up, draws his sword against knight number two. Knight number two looks at knight number one and says, I don't believe in thine sword. Knight number one has an option there. He can look confused, put his sword back into its sheath, and then start arguing why swords do exist and why they're powerful and why you should trust in them because they're kind of dangerous. He could do that. Or knight number one could do what? Win the fight, right? Use the sword for its intended purpose. Before long, knight number two is going to realize, oh, my belief that swords don't exist wasn't true. Now, I'm not in any way advocating violence here, right? We're not talking about going out and cutting people down with our fists, but we are talking about using something that's more powerful than an actual sword. This is referred to as the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God out of Ephesians 6. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It's able to judge the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. So you, you let God's Word do its work, you're going to see results. Even when somebody says, I don't believe in that. Even when somebody comes to you and says, I, I already told you I don't believe the Bible, so don't use the Bible. That would be like me putting away my sword in the fight. I would say to somebody like that, well, yeah, you already told me that you don't believe in my presupposition, but I also don't believe in your presupposition. So I'm going to use my presupposition that God's word is true to show you how yours doesn't hold water in love, right? Those are the types of conversations that we get to have because it's, we're talking about eternity, people's souls on the line. We're talking about God's righteous judgment towards unbelief and sin. Now, I trust that your leaders are walking with you through how to actually share the gospel with people. We don't have necessarily enough time to get into um, methodology. There's a thousand ways to get to Jesus. There's only one way to be saved. It's through him. There's a thousand ways to start the conversation to get to Jesus, okay? This, the, the simple methods I use is 
uh, livingwaters.com if you want to see a good way to actually practically and quickly share your faith. Livingwaters.com. A guy named Ray Comfort has been doing it for decades. He does it simply and effectively. Um, you can look at that. Bad news first, then the good news. Bad news is we all stand condemned before God. That's what the Bible says. Good news is that God did something about it by sending his son to be sacrificed for guilty criminals like me. Let me tell you about what Jesus did in my life and invite you to know him. Does that make sense? So there's also this confidence that we get to have that behind the scenes, last week these doors were opened and I felt the breeze come through and it reminded me that there's a work of the Holy Spirit that's going on that can't be seen, but the effects of the Spirit of God sometimes can in the life of a person who's being challenged and uh, affected by the power of God's word, uh, the power of the gospel, right? Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So as I articulate my hope in Jesus to a person who doesn't believe, the power is in the gospel, not me, not even how I present it. I can fumble through it and get to the point that Jesus is God's son. He loves you enough to sacrifice himself on the cross. He was buried. And then on the third day, he rose back to life like he promised, show himself to eyewitnesses. Our calendar system is revolving around this one person in history. We are in the year of our Lord, 2023. He's kind of a big deal. You should get to know him, right? We can start the conversation these ways. And as we do, I have to trust in the truth that God's word about the work of the Holy Spirit convicting people as I share the gospel with them is going on. I can't see it happening, but I can see the effects of the Spirit moving in a person's life at times. A couple weeks ago, I was sharing the gospel with a guy who had very little knowledge of the things of God's word, wasn't a Christian. He was living at this homeless shelter that I work closely with down in Fresno. And as I'm sharing the gospel with him, just taking every kind of half-truth and things that he's believing about his life and existence and bringing it into alignment with God's word. At one point, he goes, yeah. And I'm like, oh my gosh, either he's excited or he's going to kill me. And he looks back up at me with this smile on his face. And he's like, these things are making sense. And these things are coming into alignment. I just, I'm overwhelmed. I think I want to get baptized. I want to give that a try. And I'm like, well, you don't really give it a try, but we'll get into that later. <laughs> and I just had this incredible conversation with a guy that I got to see the effect of the Spirit of God working in his life. That's rare. So don't be discouraged when you don't see that in a person's life that you're sharing the gospel with. Now, there's much that can be said. Our time is limited, but I do want to say this. Um, Proverbs 1.7 is a key verse to understand that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. We cannot truly know anything apart from the fear of God. We, it starts there. All knowledge ultimately is because God, we know anything at all. That goes for the believer, that goes for the unbeliever. In fact, Colossians 2.3 says it this way, in Christ are hidden all, not some, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Because he is, we are. Because he exists, we can speak and understand one another and experience love and these immaterial realities of life that the atheist, the unbeliever can't account for. And so some of you might be coming in today thinking, okay, this is great, but I'm struggling in my faith. I'm hanging on by a thread. I have doubts. Is this real? Am I, as a Christian coming to camp, safe to even ask these things? 
You know, do I need to deconstruct my faith, which many are doing to just eventually leave the faith altogether without reconstructing it according to God's word? Now, I remember early on in my faith, I was feeling like my faith was hanging by a thread. I prayed to God, would you strengthen my faith, Lord? I felt like I saw this vision of the thread snap when I prayed that. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. And yet that led me onto a journey of asking questions that solidified my faith by studying the historical reliability of the scriptures to see that this isn't a fairy tale. This is the most circulated book in all history. It's the bestseller year on year. It's the story of God's revelation to a broken, sinful humanity. And so maybe you're in here today and you can relate to this 2019 article in Christianity Today that says over 70% of church-going high schoolers report having serious doubts about faith. Sadly, less than half of those young people shared their doubts and struggles with an adult or friend. Yet these students' opportunities to express and explore their doubts, look at this, were actually correlated with greater faith maturity. In other words, it's not doubt that's toxic to faith. It's silence. If you have those gnawing questions, that's what your leaders are in your life for. That's what your pastor is there for. He loves you. As a fellow pastor, I love getting the difficult questions that you feel like, I don't know, I don't want to mess with their faith, asking this question. Man, that's a lie from the enemy. Don't isolate yourself. Move towards community. Amen? And then I'll just end with this, and then we'll have time for a couple of questions. I'm sorry, I wanted to leave a little bit more room for questions if you had them. But here's the deal. When we lack faith, it's it's a simple equation. Typically, because I lack faith, it's one of two things. Either... Uh, it's me or it's me. <laughs> uh, Romans ten seventeen says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It's either me not getting into God's word or it's me not asking the questions that are difficult to kind of wrestle with what is the truth? What, what does God say? Are there answers to these hard questions? At the end of the day, the most strength that we can experience in building a faith that lasts is to immerse ourselves in the book that is the eternal word of God right? So that said, I'm going to have my daughter Hannah over here. Uh, She's got a mic. If you have any questions that we can just address real quick, um, why don't you throw up your hand right now and ask. Thank you. First person, it's always scariest to go first, but you have boldness. I'm excited to hear what you have to say. How do you know that the Bible isn't historical fiction? That's a great question. How do you know that the Bible is not historical fiction? Um, Because of the Bible being the uh, transcribed eyewitness accounts of people who lived and breathed and experienced the very things that they testified about. So you have the internal testimony of the word of God from eyewitnesses. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four different authors writing four different perspectives on the same person from different angles, highlighting the significance of Jesus, the work that he did, and the resurrection of Jesus. Now here's the thing. I love hitting this point when people ask me that question to kind of stump me. Like, it's just a fairy tale. Come on. A bunch of people just made it up. Um, and we have a video. I was going to show it. A- any of you guys follow Babylon B? They have this great um, clip. It's, it's Christian satire. The disciples are all crowded around a fire. And Peter gets up and says, hey, I got a great idea. We know Jesus died. And they're all sad. Uh, and it's, you know, between Friday and Sunday of, of you know, the time waiting, awaiting the resurrection. Um, and Peter says, um, I have an idea. We're going to 
go steal his body. And they're like, yeah. And he's like, and then we're going to go hide it. He's like, yeah. And we're going to say that he rose from the grave. Like, yeah. And then we'll get brutally murdered and tortured. And they're like, yeah. And one of the disciples is like, wait, wait, wait. Okay, I was with you up until the last part. Can you say that last part again? He's like, yeah, yeah. We, we make up a story that he died and he rose and, you know, and, and, and we, we tell people that he rose from the grave. And then we, we lose everything and, and our families hate us and, and we die brutally. And they're like, yeah. And this one guy, John, is a representative. He's like, wait, wait, why would we do that? And it's this funny piece that basically answers the question. If the disciples were following something that they were all in, as some historians claim, the disciples just hid the body. Uh, Jewish unbelievers will still uh, pass that story along, that Jesus' body was taken and hidden, and they just propagated a story that, that he rose from the grave. At what cost, or at rather what benefit to them does that lie help them at all? When we make up a lie, it's typically for um, selfish reasons, right? It benefits ourselves in some way. No one dies brutally for something that they know to be false. People oftentimes will, will die for something they sincerely believe. That happens. But nobody dies. 11, 12 disciples are not going to be brutally tortured for something that they know to be a myth, that's some of the historical reliability that I go to with people just in a snapshot. Hopefully that's helpful. How do you know the disciples were real? How do you know the disciples were real? Can we talk afterwards? Because that's a really good question. I want to honor people's times. Um, uh, and I wanted to get to other people's questions, but I don't know if we... Are you guys cool with staying a couple minutes longer to see who has another question? Let's just get, let's just get one more question back here. Um, you want to run it back to her real quick? Would you be able to do that? Awesome, thanks. Where? Up right there. Um, hi. So I've had a lot of people ask me, like, how do you know your religion, your faith is the right one? Um, because there are other people who do have strong beliefs mm -hmm. and are living good lives um, and who would die for their faith. So how would I respond to someone who says, how do you know your religion's right without necessarily having knowledge on maybe what they believe? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's difficult because uh, it goes back to... Um, isn't, you know, relativism, right? Like everybody kind of believes their own thing. Just let them be and let's be happy. Um, but at the end of the day, we look at people who don't believe in Christianity with the same confidence as a professed atheist. We, we let the word of God do its work. If this truly is uh, living and active, as I get to share with them the truth of God, and how it differs from their worldview or their faith system, they're going to hear distinctions as I just share, look, this is my hope in the gospel. I've blown it. I have no hope in and of myself. I'm a sinner, guilty, and deserving death, eternal separation from God. But God decided to send his son to forgive. That's the distinction between Christianity and every other religion is that God did something about it. We can't work our way to God. That's what every other faith system is about, working your way to God, being a good person. The Bible says the opposite, that none of us are good that we all fall short of the glory of God, that we can only be saved by faith, by grace through faith in Jesus. And so as you share the truth of that, that's where the power exists. And so you don't have to feel this onus of, I gotta know every worldview out there, every possible belief system out there in order to refute it. I just have to know this thing as well as possible. Kind of like when people who work with counterfeit money in the government, they don't study all the counterfeits out there. 
they actually spend their time studying the real thing so well so that when the fake comes, they immediately are able to recognize it. So hopefully that'll help in yeah, your journey. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we got one more question over here, but we're out of time. I want to honor your time. Let me say this. If you guys want to talk afterwards, I'm here to talk. That'd be great. Uh, chapel is ending here, but uh, go and get ready for rec, and then rec chapel is what you're going to head to next. Thanks, you guys.